Hello, I'm Daryl Jones, and I'm here with David Ward for Musicians on the Record. And uh, let's get it started. Hi, welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. You've heard the music, now hear their story. And you have definitely heard this guy's music, along with the rest of the Rolling Stones. We are so fortunate to have Daryl Jones, the bassist for the Stones, on the show today. Daryl has been in the band since 1993. That's unbelievable. Time has flown by. So many great stories And Daryl couldn't have been a nicer guy to talk to, very generous with his time. I could have talked for hours more. I don't know if he could have, but so many great stories about playing with Charlie Watts, getting the gigs with both the Stones and Miles Davis, and learning to listen to the intention of a musician. This is going to be great stuff. Daryl Jones is on the show today. Of course, Daryl has played both with the Stones and Miles Davis, as well as dozens more B.B. King, Eric Clapton, Sting. It's crazy, this guy's resume. It's unbelievable. He is the real deal. He's also got some solo projects that we're going to talk about, including Stone Raiders and Three Brave Souls. Google that and that you can check out what Daryl is doing in his solo projects. So thank you so much for joining us today. If you're back with us, welcome back. And if you're here for the first time, welcome to you. And we would encourage you to Subscribe to the audio podcast. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. And please let us know which musician story you'd most love to hear. You can connect with us and subscribe to the audio podcast, as well as you can watch this interview with Daryl and I and all of our other interviews on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, musiciansontherecord.com. Here's my time with Daryl Jones. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to have you on the show today. Um, I, I'm wondering if we could start with, you know, one of the biggest things coming up this year for you. Obviously, the Stones going back on tour in May in Europe. Uh, it's the No Filter Tour. Any any sense of what that name means? Why that was called that? No, not at all. Really, okay. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I'm not privy to those conversations okay. uh, that happens. Uh, yeah. Above my pay grade, I guess. Okay. Know. Yeah. They didn't run it by you. They didn't, they didn't focus group it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Great. So can you give us a, a glimpse of a day in the life of what is it like to be on tour with the Stones and, and what kind of preparation? I mean, it's we're at the end of March now. How do you have to prepare for a Stones tour? Well, I mean, for any tour, I um, generally, you know, like to try to get into decent shape just because it's a little bit harder to, to maintain that, that kind of, you know, exercise regimen and stuff like that on the road. So I, I, tr- I spend some time getting, uh, trying to just, you know, get, get clear, get clean a little bit and, uh, you know, uh, get my health together and, uh, lose a few pounds if, uh, if that's possible. And, uh, and then basically, uh, all of the preparation for the tour really musically happens, you know, during the couple of weeks of rehearsal that we do, uh, leading up to the tour. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get started with that. And, uh, uh, the interesting thing is that in the last, uh, since 2012, when the Stones kind of, there was a, there was a, a five year period where they didn't tour between 2007 and 2012. After that time, the band has toured a little bit differently, not quite as long, you know, uh, uh, tours. And, um, uh, 
But everyone seems to have, um, it seems that everyone is able to keep their place a bit better. So we don't need as much rehearsal as we once did. We used to rehearse six or six or eight weeks um, before a big tour. And now, uh, not more than a couple of weeks because everybody is, uh, everybody keeps their place and everybody's playing really well. And uh, so it just takes us a couple of weeks to kind of prepare and, and off we go. Can you give us a little bit of a behind the scenes, uh, a glimpse of what it's like rehearsing with the Stones? Probably not focusing on honky tonk woman that you're trying to get it right, but more of a different arrangement. Well, more, more um, the, the most of the rehearsal goes to songs that we're adding to the set. You know, things that we haven't played for a while or haven't played ever. There are a few things that that come up in that way, uh, and so those songs generally get the, uh, or unless we're doing a rearrangement of something, you know, uh, uh, otherwise, um, yeah, most of the rehearsal goes to, to, uh, um, to, um, you know, just regaining some balance on things that, uh, they, that we haven't played for a while or, yeah. or polishing up, you know, things that are, that are going to be new to the show. Sure. I saw you guys with a buddy of mine a couple of years ago, back in Boston at the Boston garden. And what, you know, they say, you know, so much, so much stuff around 50 years and all of that. I think if you do anything for 50 years, you're going to get better at that. And I was just blown away how tight the band was, how much energy there was. I mean, it was great in the 60s and 70s, but it's fantastic today. So much energy. Yeah, no, I have a lot of fans coming and telling me, you know, fans that have been, you know, have seen 100 plus shows over the last 50 years or 50 55 now almost uh more than 55 now um uh that they feel like the band is playing better now than they than they ever have um and i think uh you know a number of things happen things happen obviously like you say you know you do something long enough you get good at good at it i think the other thing is um they're also at an age where they um are consciously more appreciative mm. of of uh of the position that they have and so they all take it very, very seriously. And uh, I think, uh, and everybody seems to be, there was a period before I joined the band where they were all on the road with their own separate bands. Right. Um, yes. And because I didn't play with them before that, I'm not you know, uniquely in a position to really comment on it. But what I'm told by people who were around before and after I came on is that during that period, they all got got to be better musicians. Hmm. And they had to kind of go in front of their own bands. And so I think that uh, I do know that, that Voodoo Lounge, the record that I came and record, they had never recorded basic tracks in five weeks, which is what we recorded basic tracks on that record for. Apparently, it had taken them a lot longer than that. So I think they all got to be much better musicians, and that has just continued over the last, you know, 25 years. Right. Funny to say it like that. Right. <laughs> yeah, because you've been in the band for a long time now, right? Yeah, since uh, November of 1993, so that makes right. it, I'm in the 25th year. Right. That's incredible. Congratulations on that. I want to talk a little bit about the story of with you and Miles Davis of getting that gig. I'm also curious about how the audition went. I mean, obviously you got the gig, but with the Stones, what was yeah. that whole process like for you? Um, the audition with the Stones um, was actually, it's funny because the two auditions that, you know, that, that have been um, 
you know, the pinnacles and I guess in a way of my career, the audition with Miles and the audition with the Stones uh, were both very informal. Hmm. It was not nearly as, uh, you know, there was nobody sitting behind a table asking me questions and, and, and telling me play this now and play that now. As a matter of fact, when I walked into the room, uh, Mick, you know, reintroduced, he introduced himself and said, you remember we met during the, the filming of, uh, of Bring on the Night? And I said, of course, I remember that. He says, so listen, and if you don't know the songs, uh, we'll teach you the songs and then we'll have the audition. Wow. Okay. It doesn't really get more informal than that. So everybody was very comfortable, and you know, Ronnie introduced himself and and uh, and offered me a Guinness, and uh, and so uh, and, and of course, I'd known I knew Keith from from uh, his dealing with uh, with Charlie Drake and Steve Jordan okay. and the expensive wine. I was uh, so yeah, it was meeting Charlie and sitting down and playing through you know a bunch of the hits and. A few months later, I came in and they'd written much of the material for Voodoo Lounge. I came in and played through some of that stuff and they asked me to record with them. Wow. And that's how you found out you got the gig? Well, that's how I found out I was going to record with them. It wasn't until that. So that would have been in uh, October mm-hmm. of uh, 93 uh, when they were doing uh, additional recording in Los Angeles in January of 94. Um uh, I guess I came to the studio to hang out and just missed Charlie. And Keith remarked to me, he said, uh, did you see Charlie, man? He just left. And I said, well, I guess I missed him because I just arrived and I didn't see him. And he said, well, when he was here, he, he asked me, he says, uh, so we've recorded the record now and, uh, uh, you know, we use Daryl. And so we're going to use him on tour, right, Keith? And, and Keith said, said, you know, said, told me that he said to Charlie, well, of course, man. Yeah. You know, uh, we're going to use Daryl. He says, Charlie said to him, well, don't you think we ought to tell him, you know? <laughs> and so Keith, you know, you know, says, so man, we'd love to have you come and tour with us. And that's how the, that part of the thing happened. I was actually asked to record first and then. A few months later, I was asked to, to join the band. Amazing. What was that first show like with the Stones? Nervous? Okay. Where were you at with that? You know, the, we'd rehearsed a lot. You know, they hadn't played since uh, Steel Wheels. Okay. And so we rehearsed for, for several weeks uh, up in Toronto. And so we were, you know, by, by showtime, we were, we were pretty much ready to, you know, ready to rock. So uh, I don't remember being particularly nervous um it was definitely a uh, uh, an eye-opening experience to see the um the enthusiasm of a stone's crowd that was something that was uh that was pretty uh pretty amazing to see uh uh the yeah, stones fans are yep. are from my from from my experience unlike almost anybody else they're really dedicated fans and they're enthusiastic and you hear them and they're singing along and, and, uh, and, and everybody's having a great time. So that was, was a pretty unique experience. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been, you know, there's also my great miles fans and great sting fans, but Stones fans definitely, uh, I guess also because of the number of them, you right. know, make their, make their imprint on you pretty, pretty, made their imprint on me pretty early on. Yeah, sure. I mean, so many iconic songs, right? So 
can we, you know, I've had the luxury a little bit because I was at the sessions.org panel at the NAM show a couple of years ago when you told some of your story, which was really great. But can I ask you to recap some of that of when did you fall in love with music in the first place? Well, music had always been a part of, of, uh, of the household that I grew up in. My father was listening to early miles and, uh, Oscar Peterson and, uh, John Coltrane and, uh, and, and Count Basie was maybe his favorite. Yeah. And my mom was always listening to soul music on the radio on WVON, which is the, the, the soul station in Chicago. Um, uh, a lot of James Brown, Curtis Mayfield, blues, uh, uh, Sly and the Family Stone was, was, was a, you know, was, was a big presence when I, you know, was coming of age. Um, and my mom took us to see James Brown pretty much for a period there. She took us to see James Brown whenever she could take a child to see James Brown. You know, I saw him at Soldier Field. Wow. I'm at the International Amphitheater in Chicago, nice. uh, Chicago Stadium. Uh, and so music was always a part of my childhood. Um, uh, and I guess because of my parents' love of music, I inherited that from them even before I was a musician. I remember dancing to Motown. Um, you know, when I was five, four or five or six years old, my cousin and I, uh, putting our socks on and sliding across the, the, you know, the wood floor, uh, trying to dance like James Brown. So I guess it, you know, that, that was, uh, that was, uh, you know, imprinted on me at Mm -hmm. a very, very young age that music was just a part of life. And, and it was a little bit later that, uh, my father played drums or he had a practice pad. And so he would practice with this practice pad. And again, that was something that I remember as far as I can, as far back as I can remember. Um, he, um, I decided that I wanted to, to be like him and, and play drums. And so he bought me a little practice pad and some little sticks. I must have been seven years old, I guess. And, uh, and he pulled from under the bar that, uh, that he built in the basement a, package which contained a small xylophone Hmm. and he you know familiarized me with the notes and with a major scale and with a chromatic scale and that was basically how i started and it was a a couple of years later that i saw um a neighbor a guy who lived uh, two doors down angus thomas saw him and a bunch of his friends play in the school the elementary school talent show Hmm. and i do remember for a number of reasons, when I saw that performance, it was very, very clear to me that I wanted to make music my life. Mm. I was, I don't think I was, yeah, I was not yet 10 years old. I was nine years old. Wow. Powerful moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it hit me pretty hard. I think it was, first of all, I was a kind of quiet, quiet kid, a little, you know, pretty shy. And I guess the response of the audience, because there had been people twirling batons and tap dancing and stuff like that. But so see the curtains open and see a band playing and to realize that not only did I know some of the guys, know Angus, but the other guys who were on stage had been my play leaders, which was like the older kids who watch you during recess in, in, uh, in, in uh, elementary school. I knew, you know, most of the band, most of the guys in the band. and so. Um, I, um, that was the beginning for me. And I, 
have to say that looking back on it, I was as sure of that as I have been of anything in my life. I was sure that I was like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to be. Yeah, and pretty much from, and I decided when I see Angus again, the first time I see him, I'm going to ask him to teach me to play. And he said, do you want to learn how to play bass guitar or lead guitar? And I said, what do you play? And he said, I play the bass. And I said, well, I want to learn how to play the bass. That's how this whole thing started. There was already a guitar in the house. It wasn't a bass guitar, but there was a guitar in the house. And he started teaching me on this six-string Norma guitar that I'm sure my mother bought from Sears. When And it had been around the house two or three years before I picked it up. So, you know, it was... Um, I had a lot of encouragement from my parents and a lot of support from my family, you know. And so uh, I went into music and uh, yeah. I've, I've not regretted a day of it. Right. It sounds like it's worked out pretty well for you, which is great. Why do you think, you know, in addition to Angus playing the bass and, you know, we all have folks we want to, we idealize. Mm-hmm. What What is it about the bass that calls to you? Because you stuck with it. You could have played the bass a little bit and then I want to try guitar. What is it about the bass that really feeds you? Well, I, I, um, I, I don't know. So, you know, the first time someone asked me that was the first time I was in, in Paris with Miles and a, and a, a, uh, a um, Marie Francois, I'll never forget that, asked me why did she, she asked me the same question. And, and I thought about that for the first time and, and it occurred to me or considered it for the first time. I came from a very, very stable household. And um, um, I think that both my um, my connection to the bass and my um, my ability to or or the, the the sense that it is the right instrument for me, uh, or I should say, at this point, one of the right instruments for me, is that that it uh, it connotes stability, you know, and uh, and so I think that. You know, coming up in such a stable household, I think maybe that has, has something to do with it. Um, many years later, uh, Angus would, was in, you know, he lives in Europe uh, and uh, he was teaching and he would have a lot of young students come to him and say, uh, um, uh, I want you to teach me to play like Daryl Jones, you know, <laughs> and uh, and and he, oh, no, he would actually say to me, he says, man, you know, in the articles, you always mentioned my name as your teacher and you've like gone on and done so much. He says, man, we really did teach each other after that initial, you know, point of me showing you how to play. Uh, and he said something to me, he said, um, looking at it now from, from, you know, from the, you know, the perspective of, uh, of hindsight, he said, you were a bass player a long time before you picked up the instrument. You know, it was just one of those things, man. I think that, I found the right instrument for my, you know, for my personality and for, for, uh, you know, for, for the way I grew up. And, uh, and at the same time, he was a good enough teacher to also introduce me to different icons that I could take certain things from Jimi Hendrix being one, you know? Um, and I think, uh, you know, Hendrix represents for me a certain, um, a certain um, um, wildness or a certain uh, um, desire to go outside of a little bit outside of what is would be considered 
kind of normal or proper. Um, it's a certain kind of irreverence is maybe the word for, it, you know. And so um, uh, Miles Davis, you know, you know, him being an icon in my life both before and after I uh, became a musician, definitely, uh, you know, pushing boundaries a little bit, not, you know, you know, not fitting into, you know, the, the, the whole, um, um, you know, there, I have several, you know, different artists who, who, um, I, I think I've gained something from, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't play their, you know, that instrument. Well, right. I'm trying, I'm holding guitars and uh, six string guitars now. And Are you? Yeah. Trying to learn how to play, but I okay. wouldn't say I'm a guitarist quite yet. Yeah. Well, probably none of us are going to be like Hendrix, right? He's the top of the heap right there. So, yeah. Um, so that's amazing because it sounds like those guys helped, you know, the bass really is that foundation of the band with the rhythm section, but helps you express your own voice as well. Right? True. True. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk about the rhythm section of a band, Daryl, that how important that is and what do you think makes a good rhythm section and a good bassist? Well, um, a good rhythm section, I think it's, and it, it will sound like it's a given, but listening musicians that really listen to each other. And I don't mean in that kind of normal, you know, the TV's in the background, I'm kind of listening to it way. I mean, in a very active way. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you're home alone and you're in the shower and you hear a strange noise, that way of listening, when you really lit, I mean, when, and, 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 and in a way, you know, what I learned from playing with uh, both Otis Clay, who was a Chicago, um, or, or artist from Chicago or out of Chicago, he's probably from the South somewhere, but from him and from Miles Davis, from playing with both of them. Um, is you're listening not just to the music, but you're also listening to the intentions of the musicians around you. And to the extent that you can kind of cross that line and, and your listening becomes um, um, where you're really trying to understand the intentions of the musicians around you, then you become a musician, a rhythm section musician, who is really worth his salt. Mm-hmm. Um, the drummer should should kind of be able to, uh, in a way, intuit what the vocalist, what the lead vocalist is doing, um, and as well as everyone else. So I think that's one of the things that's really necessary, a really keen sense of, of listening and, uh, and intuiting. Um, I think uh, you have to um, take each different genre of music uh, and look at it seriously. I don't think that musicians who think they can play one kind of music and automatically think if they can play that, that they can play other kinds of music. I don't think that you really get to the meat of the, of the, of the, of the genre that you're, that you're, um, that you're trying to learn. I think, uh, if you're trying to learn to play classical music, you have to take that as seriously. If you're trying to learn how to play jazz, you have to take that seriously. Um, rock and roll. Um, all of these different things, reggae music. I think you have, and you have to go and and listen to the people who um, who established what those what those kinds of genres uh, mean and and what they sound like. You know, um, um, when we were recording, uh, um, you don't have to mean it with the Stones. Um, I asked Keith, 
I said, listen, man, I don't have a lot of experience with reggae. Make me a tape of, you know, your favorite stuff so so that I can really hear what guys are doing. You know, I mean, I'm hip to family, man, but there's so many other guys. Uh, and I asked him to to really, you know, help 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 me educate myself about those mm-hmm. things. And I think that those, you know, those kinds of things are very, very important for not only rhythm section musicians, but any musician. You know, you have to know the history of, of music that you're playing. Absolutely. And, uh, and you have to do some research and you have to, to learn it, you know, first from those people who, I mean, James Jamerson is a perfect example. You know, uh, if you want to play soul music or rhythm and blues, you got to, you got to, you know, you got to go to school, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean that I would recommend the guys transcribe stuff, but you have to at least listen to it enough that you understand where he's coming from, you know? And so um, those are some of some of the things that I think are important for, for musicians, generally speaking. That's incredible. Can you say that this concept of the intention of a musician learning and listening to the intention, can you give us an example around that? Like when you started playing with Miles Davis, how did you learn the, his intention of music? Well, you do it, you do it, it comes through listening. It comes through, I guess, what I'll call, for lack of a better term, active listening. Um, not long after I joined the band, he decided that he wanted to play the Cindy Lauper tune time after time. And, um, of course, at the, at the moment, I thought, well, I'm, I'm in the band now, he wants to play pop tunes. Well, the truth right. is, he had been doing that for, you know, for 30 years, you know, before I joined, you know, joined him, or even longer, you know. Uh, 40 years. Um, and, uh, but he said, learn that. He asked me, he said, Daryl, learn that tune. We're going to play that tune. And so when we started to rehearse it, there's the part that goes, he said, we're going to stay there. We're not just going to play that and move to the da 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 part. So we're going to vamp on that. And he said, uh, and when I go to da da da, just go there. And I said, what, what do you mean, Miles? Like 16 bars, 32 miles? And he looked at me and said, when I go there, go there. <laughs> and, you know, me being young and, you know, full of, you know, full of like, you know, you know, indignation. I was like, okay, okay. And I decided right in that moment, I'm going to watch him and I'm going to listen. And when he goes, I'm going to, I'm going to go with him and I'm just going to watch him. And something is going to tell me when to go. And so sure enough, we get on stage and we're playing the tune and he's vamping on that part and he's playing over it. And something told me, I'm looking at his body and I'm listening to him. Something told me he's going to go next time. Now, if you know, if you're a musician and you understand how that song works, I have to be, I have to play at the same time he goes, da, da, I have to change. Right. So I have to be there right at the moment that he's there. But I just kept watching him and listening, and I said to myself, he's going to go. And so I went, and he went, and he stopped for a second and looked up at me like, you know, but that my, you know, that's my point. That's an example of what I'm speaking about, where you're not just listening. Yeah. You're watching, you're, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're trying to, to, um, to intuit. What is going to happen with the music? And I think, uh, excuse me, you really separate yourself from some of the guys who don't, you know, who are not listening as carefully or who are not paying as careful attention. I think uh, 
the great musicians are ones that uh, that not only play well but really listen well. And so I would say that uh, you know that's, that's that's very important for me. That's, that's yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Just hearing that that whole story, it really is. That's part of the craft of listening absolutely. music. Yeah. You know, also, of course, with the rhythm section, you play with one of the best in Charlie Watts. Can you tell us a little bit about what you love about Charlie and his playing? Well, Charlie's just, uh, he's, he's such an, an interesting combination of, uh, of, of these elements. You know, he is, um, you know, well, I mean, he, you know, without um, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, I know Charlie, so I don't want to say something that will embarrass him. But the truth is, is him along with uh, you know Ringo Starr and a few others, um, you know, probably a number of others. They really invented rock and roll drumming, right. and so um, I took the 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 uh, the attitude that I should just listen to him very carefully and try to meld what I'm doing, you know, with him. He is, um, I don't say that he's the, he's not necessarily the only point of, of, of contact, but he is my first point of contact as he was the day that I auditioned for the Stones. I mean, I realized, you know, it was very easy to come into the audition and look at Mick and Keith and go, wow, well, if I want the job, I guess I have to impress them. But that's not the way that I was thinking that day. I really decided if I play well with Charlie, the rest will take care of itself. And I will also learn, you know, but I thought the first order of business is to play with Charlie. And still to this day, that is really what I do. Um, uh, Not necessarily to the exclusion of anyone else, but that's my first point of contact. He is um, incredibly steady, um, but not to the point of being clockish. You know, um, there is some some breathing and some movement, which um, you miss when you hear sometimes, for instance, you're sometimes you will be at a wedding and you'll hear a really great wedding band play a Rolling Stones song. And you'll say to yourself, that sounds really good, but it does not have it lacks a certain swagger that uh, that and looseness that is very, very much part of the Rolling Stones sound. And I think a lot of that starts with Charlie Watts. Um, he has a way of being very, very steady without being um, metronome-like, yeah. you know, which I think is, is, is important for, for almost, you know, for any, almost any kind of music, you know. Um, I, I really did think for a lot of, from, for many years, that, that music should be, you know, you know, by the clock and, and all of that stuff. And the, the older I get and the more I understand the way music uh, is played and the, it, it sh- there should be some breathing, you know, and, uh, and he's great at that. I, um, uh, I think we, we, I think we've learned how to support the band together in a way that, that is, that is very unique. Um, um, I just dig it, man. I dig playing with him. We have a lock. I am not the kind of person who will ever, um, uh, or it's rare when I will, you know, toot my own horn about, you know, the way that I play. But 
I will toot my horn a bit about the way Charlie Watts and I play together. Yeah. I think uh, we have something very, very special, and, and uh, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, no question. Toot, toot away on that, because it's incredible. Uh, you know, he, he got the loudest ovation at the end of the show. I mean, the whole crowd just stood up and went, Charlie, Charlie was incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, the other piece for him, not only a great rock drummer, but he's a, a incredible jazz drummer as well. Did that help your jazz playing, your background playing with Miles? Is that part of the connection as well? That is definitely part of the connection. Uh, we both love jazz music. Uh, and I would say, you know, in Charlie's case, though he has been playing rock and roll all of these years, I would say that jazz is probably his first love of music. Uh, and so we definitely share those things. We're always talking about this artist or that artist. And, and in many cases, he's speaking firsthand because he's seen a lot of the, the, the jazz greats, um, uh, you know, for, for, you know, for, for many years before I was, uh, before I was, you know, even playing. And so, um, that definitely is something that we have in common. You would not know it to look at me, but uh, we also really love clothing. All right. <laughs> uh, so you can tell by looking at him, but you can't always tell by looking at me. So we talk about that kind of stuff a lot. We both love to read. We love books. Okay. Um, uh, we have a lot in common. He's uh, he's a really lovely, really funny. You know, you know, in a way that you know that that obviously a lot of people don't know, but. Great, great sense of very, very well, dis- well developed sense of humor, and um, and we we get along great. I, I, you know, I have nothing but but great things to say about him. He's an elegant, elegant fellow, uh, a proper English gentleman, um, and also you know, and and he's a you know he's a jazzer and a rock and roller. So it's you know. Well, what more could you want, right? <laughs> Has your jazz playing, because I hear this from most people, learning jazz makes you a better rock player, or actually quite a bit of better any kind of player. That jazz is really, if you can learn that, that's really... Well, I think that, uh, I think that there are some things, again, jazz music is based on a, a number of things. One is the musicians must listen to each other in order to create jazz. So again, we're back to listening. I think that uh, in order to improvise, you have to develop a repertoire of different things to play. Um, you have to understand theory in a way um, that, that might be a little bit uh, more, um, more um, uh, intense than with, you know, maybe pop music or, or that kind of thing. Um, I don't believe that, just the simple act of playing uh, jazz will necessarily make you a better uh, rock and roll musician. I think you have to take those same, uh, uh, that same intensity that you use to, to learn jazz music, to learn rock and roll music. And I think under those circumstances, then all of those things become something that you learn more and more from. I would say the same thing is true about classical music. Uh, uh, you want to de- develop technique. You want to, you know, develop those kinds of things, a cleanliness, um, mastery of your instrument. Classical music is going to help you do that in the same way that I think jazz. Well, in a, in a, in a, uh, uh, in a way parallel to the way that jazz music will, will do. So, um, and in a way, you know, it goes back to something that Miles said to me: one art helps the other. 
he encouraged me to draw, to paint, he's to cook food, um, all of these things, understand like this amount of this ingredient, add a little bit of that. Um, uh, this color, add a little bit of that color. All of these senses of of challenging yourself to 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 exercise those senses helps uh, other arts, you know. And so I think it would necessarily be necessarily be true about different kinds of music. Sure, no question. Yeah. And do you do do you do some of those, Daryl? The art, painting, cooking, anything like that. You know, I have not really, I don't draw as regularly as I should, but I've got a bunch of sketchbooks around here and an easel and, you know, I don't do as much of that kind of stuff as, as I, as I, as I would like to. Yeah. Um, I am completely in awe of, 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 of artists and painters and stuff like that. I was at the Van Gogh Museum in, uh, in Amsterdam and it was, just a moving experience in the same way that, and I didn't think it would be, uh, I didn't think when I first started, you know, going to art galleries and, and museums that I would be affected by art in very much the same way that I'm affected by music, you know, okay. uh, very emotionally. Yeah. Um, I do cook. I love to cook. And, uh, uh, you know, you know, the circle of friends around me, you know, uh, are very encouraging and, and I use them to, to try things out. But I really... I probably spend more time thinking about cooking than I do about music. I, I'm, it was something that my, another thing that my father did that I that I, I have from him and my mother. You know, they were both cooking great cooks, and uh, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the physical arts. I really am a fan of boxing, um, uh, particularly if the opponents are well matched. Right. And so I do uh, what's called mitt work, which is uh, a kind of exercise mm-hmm. that is associated with, uh, with with boxing technique, you know, that's going different punches and stuff like that. All of those things, I, I think uh, it helps timing, you know, it helps, uh, uh, you know, to to uh, again, like your, you know, maybe not your uh, intelligence. Quote, well, an intelligence quotient in another way as well, because yeah. boxing is very much a chess game. You know, what will you do if this person does that? How will you defend it? How will you take advantage of them trying to take advantage of you? you know? And so all of these things, I think, are uh, are elements that are that, that are, are powerful um, um, elements of music that can be used. And so all of those things. Are Amazing. And no, no concerns around hurting your hands because obviously your hands are your living. No, um, because I'm not boxing. I don't box. Um, I do mitt work. The, I, I hit a mitt which has padding with a glove that has padding with my hands wrapped, which I've you know I've learned from from you know some good people, you know how to do that to protect my hands. So I'm not uh, I'm not banging enough to, right. to do any yeah. of that. Well, that's great because one of my questions was going to be like, what what would uh, something be about you that we didn't know? Like you had a wood shop in the garage or whatever, but you're you're doing the mitt work. And if we were coming to dinner, which will be there on Tuesday, uh, <laughs> what's your go to dish that you is like your favorite dish to cook, but you feel like you're really good at? Well, I mean, there, there's a number of things. My father was was. Um was uh, a a barbecue enthusiast. Nice. And so I've definitely taken some of the pages from him. We uh we don't have we don't only have roasted turkey on Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. We have a barbecue smoked turkey. Oh lovely. 
Very nice. Hickory, hickory smoked turkey. So I'm, I'm, I've got that technique pretty well together. Um, um, I like, uh, you know, all of the things that my dad said that he never got enough of as a kid. He never got enough chili. He grew, he was, grew up in a big family. Never got enough chili, never got enough barbecue, never got enough Chinese food. So those, those things are, are things that I'm, I'm, I, I, I really like to cook and, and, uh, and uh, enjoy. Enjoy eating as well. That's really cool. How do they feel about your success, Daryl? My parents? Yeah. Oh, they were very proud of me. They were I've lost both of them in the last uh ten in the last ten ten years. Sorry to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh or in the previous ten years. My mom died ten years ago, my father fourteen years ago. Um but they were very proud of me and and uh and um I, I really attribute my success to um, to to their um, to their the upbringing and the atmosphere that they that right. they um, that they created for me to grow up in. Um, um, uh, the, the, my parents are very much responsible for my work ethic. Mm. Uh, very res- very much responsible for my creative attitude. Um, my mother was a person who never ceased. Um, uh, uh, educating herself about one thing or another, you know, she's always taking class. I'd come home and there'd be a guitar case, and I'd like, "Whose guitar is that?" Just, oh, that's my guitar. I'm taking guitar lessons, you know, wow. piano lessons, or, or uh, hmm. you know, just she, she was, she never. And I'm, I'm very much the same way. I mean, you know, since I've been working with the Stones, I've taken a screenwriting class. I've, uh, you know, taking several acting. Acting seminars. Um, uh, you know, I'm talking about building instruments. So I, I took a, uh, a guitar building class at, at uh, Musicians Institute a number of years ago, and I'm now building some instruments. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, my parents really prepared me for all of this. And uh, and you know, when people say to me, uh, "Your parents must have been proud of you," I'm sure that they were. Um, I'm also very, very proud of my parents. They were extraordinary people who's, um, who gave me more than, uh, more than I need to, 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 to have succeeded. And, yeah. uh, and so I'm, I'm very happy. Yeah, it's wonderful. Something to be really grateful for. And what a gift. Not everybody has that. That's incredible. So, you know, you mentioned uh, you're getting into building a guitar or guitarists. Can you say more about that, please? Yeah. Albie Balgosian is a builder out of um, out of um, Waltham, Massachusetts. Ah. And he built an instrument for me that is... Basically, what we were trying to do was build a solid body instrument, but it's acoustic. It has a, a transducer under the bridge, no magnetic pickups. Wow. It has the, the, the uh, fretboard or the fingerboard that comes out over the instrument in the way that an acoustic bass does. Because we thought that that sound would, would, help, it, it would help the instrument sound more acoustic or a little bit more like an acoustic bass. Hmm. So it, is a, it is an electric instrument, but it basically is acoustically amplified wow. you know, with this pickup that's under that, that piece yes. of wood, you know, beautiful. And so after we'd done this instrument, we talked about doing a production instrument, like a, you know, like, and, and at the time the prices for pre CBS jazz instrument, pre pre CBS fender basses was going through the roof. And so we thought, well, it would be great if we could create like a, um, 
a a production model of an instrument that would not be so expensive, but also had the qualities of of the instruments that we love so much, the pre CBS uh, uh, Fender instruments. And so I guess that's where it kind of started because he'd send me something and we'd look at it and go, well, no, that really doesn't look quite right. And and also playing wise, it needs to you know have these changes and these changes. So. That's, I guess, what put me on the on the road to that. So we built a production instrument. For a little while, we were, had ads in Bass Player magazine, and we were trying to sell it, and that got to be a little bit top-heavy. So we decided to limp, license the instrument, and the company we decided to go with was Lakeland. Okay. And so we've licensed this instrument to Lakeland for the last, I don't know how many, 15, more than 15, 20 years. Wow. Incredible. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and... Um, so that is, I guess, where the initial interest came. I was uh, out at the Fender Custom Shop. Uh, they were, were, were recreating uh, some instruments based on my 66 jazz bass that I played with Miles and with Sting when I first kind of came on the scene. Um, and I met a guy who mentioned to me that Musicians Institute had a guitar building course. And so I just kind of something that kind of stuck in my mind. And I thought, that's, that's an interesting idea, you know. And uh, a while later, I started uh, teaching uh, some different bass courses. Hmm. Um, and uh, at, I did a couple of clinics. I did some private teaching. I did uh, some um, open counseling there for a number of, of, of students. And, um, and I mentioned to one of the guys who was working there, I said, you know, I heard that you guys do a guitar building course. And he says, and you know, we do. And, and you, as an adjunct professor, you can take that course. Nice. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. So I took the course and got to know John Carruthers, who at the time was the head of that department. And uh, so the instrument that I actually ended up not finishing the course had to leave and go on tour. When I came back, there was just about a week left in class. During that week, I finished my my base, the, wow. the base that I was building for the class, and I let a few friends play it. And they said, "There's some problems here, but this is actually not bad for a first effort." So, I decided that I wanted to build a few more, have a few more built. I took it out to John Carruthers' shop out in Camarillo, and he said, "Well, he says I could build. You know, we could fix these few problems, a few issues that you have, um, and I could build some more for you, or you could come out." Since you weren't able to finish the class, you could come out and, and, and help me do it. And that way you could learn a bit more and you could decide if this is something that you really want to be involved in. And so that's really basically where it started. So Great. made so far um, about half a dozen. Um, we've made seven, eight guitarists, eight, wow. you know, six string guitars, tellies and telly styles, uh, mm-hmm. strat styles. Mm-hmm. And we've made, um, we're coming up on about uh, half a dozen bases now. Um, you know, two pickup instruments as well as one pickup instruments. I will say that um, I grew up playing Fenders. Mm-hmm. And so that is the the style instrument that I am I'm most comfortable on and that I really love. And so though that uh, what I'm building is being informed by by that style. And and will that possibly be the new Daryl Jones signature bass? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna my my relationship with Lakeland is great. I love um, that you know what what they're doing with the instrument. I love that you know people really love it. It's uh, um, at a cost. Uh, the Skyline series is at a cost where where students can pay for it. 
unfortunately, if I'm going to build American Instruments um, under you know this new project, I won't be able to offer them at that kind of price. So I'm suggesting that people continue to you know to go to Lakeland for that. And if you want something a little bit different, a little bit more personal, uh, something that you have a little bit more input into the building of, then, you know, I'm asking you to just come in and check out my things. We're just, we're just getting started. It's not really a company yet, but it's something that I would love to, uh, to build. Yeah. Sounds exciting. Very exciting. But uh, DarylJones.com is back in effect and uh, we're hoping to keep some interesting things there. There's a number of, a number of things that I want to share with people, not just music, but books I'm reading, recipes maybe, or, you know, different things like that. And, uh, as far as any solo projects happening for you, you mentioned with the Stones and solo projects. Right. Anything else coming up for you around that? Well, there's a number of things that I've been, been working at. There are um, a few bands that I am a co-leader with. Okay. Um, one is with, uh, that we just worked uh, this past weekend uh, here in Los Angeles with Will Calhoun, who is a drummer with Living Color. And a guitarist um, who I've known since I was a teenager in Chicago. We grew up in Chicago together. Jean-Paul Borelli, who has been living in, in, in Europe uh, for a number of years and is you know, headed back this way now. But uh, we have a trio called Stone Raiders. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because the name would sound like it's got something to do with the Stones. It does not. It uh, was taken from a, it's another story. I'll have to tell yeah. that story another okay. time. But anyway, we are interested in uh, the music that we're really dealing with is um, kind of, you know, uh, rock music from the from the, the perspective of blues music forward. Mm. And I guess one of the, uh, it's a rock trio. Uh, and uh, one of the bands that, that we are, um, that we are influenced by and that we do look to as a kind of uh, part of, you know, where we're coming from is the band of gypsies. Um, uh, you know, Jean-Paul has said to me, he says, man, I really feel like there should be, or when, when that band came out, there should be a whole genre of music based on that kind of thing. Because in a way, you know, that band is, it's a modern blues band, you know? And we will say that we'll, we'll call it rock or we'll call it rock and roll, but it has its roots in blues music for a number of reasons. One, social commentary. That band, Jimi Hendrix and those guys were commenting on, you know, a machine gun is a, is a, is an incredible commentary on war. And, uh, and, uh, so that is one of the things that the band is very much interested in. The name of the, the, uh, the, the record that we put out in 2012 is Truth to Power. And I think that when we look now, we went back to, we hadn't played for a number of years. When we're looking at the subject matter of some of the things on that record, songs like Money Disease, uh, Power to Spirit, it, it, it seems very appropriate, you know, at the time that we are in, you know, at the, you know, at this kind of, uh, this kind of, um, you know, very, uh, 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 you know, time of, you know, so many people, you know, so many things butting heads. Um, uh, and blues music, you know, Jean-Paul and I being from Chicago, definitely blues music is part of our DNA, I would say. Um, and uh, Will is also, Will is from the Bronx, okay. uh, where hip hop 
was born, where rap music was born and, you know, that kind of thing. So we're really trying to, to bridge those two things into something, you know, cohesive that is, uh, um, and so I would, you know, I would, uh, 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 would ask people to, to check out that record. Um, uh, the name of the band is, uh, is, uh, Stone Raiders and the name of the record is Truth to Power. You should be able to find that record. Absolutely. And if, you're not, if you can't, please get in touch with me at the website, DarylJones.com. Okay. Uh, the other project that I've been working on um, that we're looking forward to doing some more with is a project called Three Brave Souls. Uh, the band is me, John Beasley on uh, on piano, who was a Miles alumni. We weren't with Miles at the same time, but he played with Miles. And another Miles alumni who, unfortunately, we just lost. Ndugu uh, Chancellor was a drummer for that band, and we lost him about four or five weeks ago. Um, but we, we have plans to do more. We put a record out, Three Brave Souls, that you should be able to find. It's uh, kind of the soulful side of jazz. And so um, we're uh, looking to do more on that. In addition to that, um, I am working on a record of songs that I've been working on, on my own. And I've done two gigs in Chicago, one in November, and one uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, at the beginning of March, uh, where I'm, you know, out front singing and playing, and uh, you know, playing a little bit of guitar, okay. and uh, and uh, you know, testing the waters with that. So it's it's in its beginning stages, but I'm very excited about that because for many years I've been influenced by uh, some of the people that I work with, who are great lyricists, thing chief among them, Peter Gabriel. And I've wanted to develop music in which I am writing lyrics and talking about, you know, things that, uh, that are, uh, you know, the stuff that's in my mind and in my heart. You know, I grew up in Chicago at a time where, um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, conflict and a lot of, uh, awakening of, 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 uh, of, you know, attitudes and stuff like that. And so, I'm, I'm very interested in sharing that music with people. And That's so, um, you know, there are those things and a number of other things. I'm, you know, playing with a number of other other people. I've been working some with Mike Stern, who is another Miles alumni. Um, um, uh, you know, there's, you know, the, you know, the, the music world is, is uh, far and wide. And I definitely want to uh, experiment, you know, in, in, in a number of different areas. Yeah, you're you're a busy guy, Daryl. With the songwriting process, can I ask how? I mean, I hear folks talking about sometimes it flows, sometimes it's like amazingly difficult. What's that process like for you? Well, what I'm what I'm noticing is um, it's different every time. You know, sometimes it's almost like. Uh, you know, like in, in Keith Richards' words, and so, sometimes you sit around playing something you know, some song you you wrote, or some song that someone else wrote, a wrote, and and a portal will open, and you get like an incoming, you know, inspiration, and it can be a little piece that comes through, or it can be a whole entire, you know, it can be an entire, you know, entire song or entire movement or or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and so that uh, process is different. I think the thing that, uh, you know, from myself and, and people who are, who are learning songwriting and coming to is that to just be open to whatever happens, you know, to be open to, you know, however it comes and to, 
to uh, it's almost like uh it's like uh you know uh you know birthing some entity into the world you know you have to figure out what nourishes it and when you're feeding it too much and you know and uh uh when to stop is a big thing you know for me because i'm a bit of a perfectionist so uh knowing when to like let it go and let it go out into the world and stand on its own legs uh um but uh and again um you know there's a lot to comment on these days and so uh i'm interested in doing that so yeah. so it's uh, it's a uh, it's ever changing uh, ever changing that's uh, fantastic have you had i mean the old story of course with keith of waking up from a dream and satisfaction have you yeah. had that kind of experience experience yet of waking up with the, a tune in your mind yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know that any one of those ideas has, has actually become full songs yet, but, you know, I, I, I document that stuff. I've got a, a recorder close enough to the bed where when stuff happens, I, and I actually, I had, there's a guitar laying in the bed. I have my little acoustic, uh, little acoustic guitar, you know, laying in the bed. So, uh, yeah, if I wake up with an idea, I'm pretty good about, you know, getting the basic idea down. But, it's, you know, that's also a funny thing because, you know, by the time you start playing it, it might not be the same thing as what you were drinking, you know. So, uh, again, you have to learn how to appreciate however it comes to you. And so, uh, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a uh, work in progress, let's, yeah. let's say. Sure. You know. And like children, letting it evolve, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. Let, letting it evolve. Yeah. 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 For those, I mean, you've, you've had a wonderful, successful career so far, and clearly there's more to come. You're doing a lot of incredible things. For someone wanting to be where you are, what advice might you give them for not only playing, but uh, the sort of networking, the business side of things, sort of what makes a complete musician? Yeah, I would say, um, again, first of all, you know, developing your listening skills. And that would go for on the bandstand as well as off, you know. uh, I think uh, personality definitely has a lot to do with being a successful musician, being able to get along with people. And uh, um, I think uh, uh, familiarizing yourself yourself with a number of different kinds of genres musically. Uh, if you want to work with people, a lot of, I have, it's been more than one occasion where I've had young musicians walk up to me and say, man, how do I get a gig, a big gig? And I say, well, who do you want to play with? And they say, well, anybody. (laughs) Well, you kind of got to decide, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to play with uh, John Mayer, then I guess the first thing I would do is I would start learning John Mayer's music. Now, you might not ever get a chance to play with John Mayer, but at least you educated yourself about what he does how he does it. And um, I would go and see those people play, but I would kind of decide. I would, I wouldn't just, um, uh, I wouldn't just, you know, fire, fire the shotgun, you know, uh, you know, with, with, with buckshot. I think I would want to, to, to like really decide, okay, I would like to play with this artist, this artist, this artist, and this artist. I would begin learning their book. I would begin by learning, you know, what it is that they're doing. I would read as much as I can about them personally and about, you know, their interviews, you know, what they say about music, their approach to music. 
And I would try to internalize that those things in, in a certain way. I think that's important. I think, um, um, you know, in the words of, you know, what Branford Marcellus told me that his father told him, you, in a way, if you want to be a successful musician, you have to do what many musicians are unwilling to do. Mm-hmm. You have to practice, <laughs> you know, and uh, or at least because, to be honest, I wasn't a huge practicer, but I put myself in a lot of musical situations from an early age. I always had. Um, when I come off the road or before I started the last, um, tour I did with, uh, with the Stones, um, I was in Japan with Mike Stern playing completely different music, but I want to keep those, I want to keep that, that, that knife sharp. And so, um, when I leave the Stones, I want to do something that's maybe a little bit different so that I keep these different, um, tools home and i think it's important for a musician if you want to do what i've done that you have to do that and i would suggest for any young musician to write songs do not um segregate yourself to one instrument uh i i i I don't know why somebody didn't say to me when i was 10 or 12 years old you know you could you can open your mouth and sing, you know, you can you know work on that. It's you don't have to be good at it overnight, but if you add these things in, you know, my brother plays plays guitar. I never thought about picking up a guitar all the years that we played together, you know. Um it's something that I really wish I had now because I'm now trying to catch up, you know. Uh, I think that uh immerse yourself in, in in different kinds of music. Immerse yourselves in if you're a drummer Pick up a bass and figure out what it's you know what what a bass player has to do in order to do his job. Vice versa, if you're a drum, if you're a bass player, sit down at a, at a set of drums and really see what it's like to try to keep a, a groove happening, so that you just understand things from the other side a little bit. Um, music is such a vast and and uh, lifelong pursuit that I think that uh, you know immerse yourself in it, immerse yourself in it, and and. Uh, and um, another thing I would say is, I think whether you are a a um, hobby room player, or you are a a working musician, or you are a successful um, touring musician, or you are an incredible artist on your own right, I think we all have to take a moment and give thanks. Uh, to the universe for allowing us to be musicians in any way. It is an incredible privilege. And I think that we have to be thankful that we get to do it on any level. And I think if you take that into your playing, you also take something that people will, will recognize. They recognize your love of what you're doing and your appreciation for what you're doing. And I would say that just to, to kind of come full circle, you asked me about why the stones sound like they sound now. I think they're, I think they're all at an age. And I know that I'm at an age where you don't take it for granted anymore. It's something that has served you and has taught you and has taken you all of these different places. And you want to, when you pick up the instrument, you want to be conscious of conscious of that and you want to give of yourself to it. And I think um, when you do that, p- 
people who are who are watching in the audience, people who are witnessing it, they can feel that. Absolutely. Well, and I can feel it right now. Uh, I'm thankful for you, Daryl, and your music. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much for being on Musicians on the Record today. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much, Daryl Jones, for being on Musicians on the Record today. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world. What did you think about the interview? So many cool stories with Daryl about getting the gig with the Stones, playing with Charlie Watts, playing with Miles Davis, listening to the intention of a musician, and so much more. Let us know what you think. You can subscribe to the audio podcast here and leave comments and You can connect with us on our Facebook page, YouTube page, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, musiciansontherecord.com. Thanks again for being here. If you're enjoying the interviews, please be an ambassador for the show and share them with someone that you know would love them too. Until next time, we're going to keep it all about the music. I'm David Ward. Thanks for listening to Musicians on the Record.